Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. So today is technically within the scope of our series on the book of Genesis, but we're going to be mostly stepping outside of Genesis to examine what it means to have a biblical worldview. We brought up the idea of a worldview in our last episode. Our definition was the underlying set of beliefs and assumptions by which we make sense of the world. So we said that a worldview is something that every single human being possesses. It's like a a set of glasses that you look through in order to view and understand the world. We all have a worldview. Now, when we're born, we're born with a worldview. It's a fairly poorly developed one. But as we grow this worldview, Uh, Through both what our parents teach us and by what we observe and the connections we start to make, our worldview starts to be shaped and formed. Now, worldviews are very persistent, and as we'll talk about, hopefully our worldview changes after we become a Christian, but you will bring many vestiges of your pre-Christian worldview with you, and we want to bring our worldview, bring the way we think and the way we examine and evaluate all ideas and events, we want to bring it to Scripture and let Scripture shape our worldview. So I want you to maybe switch the analogy a little bit. I don't want you to think about glasses. I want you to think about a stage. Just imagine a very simple stage made up of wooden planks, planks nailed together. And once these planks are nailed together, you can then stand on that stage, and that's where you sort of view your audience from. So I want us to think about the elements, the planks, that go together to make up a biblical worldview. Now, all of us are going to, I hope, agree on most of what we're saying here. We might differ on degrees on some of these, but what we want to examine in this episode is how do the scriptures evaluate and examine events and facts, and how can we begin to conform ourselves to scripture's pattern of thought? And so we're going to be looking primarily at Acts chapter 17, Paul's speech in Athens that he gives to the Greek philosophers. And we're going to be using material not from what the Old Testament authors really cared about, but rather from D.A. Carson's book, Telling the Truth, Evangelizing Postmoderns. I'll be using material that I pulled from Dr. Carson's essay in that book. So let's begin by reading Acts 17, 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which was this outdoor area where Greek philosophers would gather and debate ideas, Paul said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurances 
to all by raising him from the dead. So again, we said a worldview is the stage on which we stand in order to see the world around us. And what's so helpful about this speech is that Paul is speaking to people who have no familiarity with the scriptures. They likely have never read Deuteronomy. They don't know the Psalms. They don't know Job. Many of them have really not heard of Jesus. And so Paul has to speak in a very plain way, and he can assume nothing. And we can pick apart this speech and we can say, here is what Paul wants these people to see about God. Here are the true basics. We talk about the basics like, for example, sin. Well, think about all the things that you have to know before you can get to the concept of sin. I mean, just think about it. You have to know about God. You have to know about his law. You have to know about human responsibility. You have to know about humans being like, I mean, there's just so many things that we take for granted when we say the word sin. And Paul takes none of those things for granted. And so by looking at this speech, it's really interesting. It helps us get to the true basics of how Christians view and understand the world. So what are the planks that make up the biblical worldview? Here is plank number one. God is the creator. As it says in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. And from that truth, God is creator, two things follow. Because God is the creator, God is distinct from his creation. And because God is the creator, we are accountable to our creator. If God made me, then that means he has authority over me and I answer to him. To defy him and make ourselves the center of the universe is the very essence of sin. To cherish and worship created things is the very essence of idolatry. So the first plank that we want to nail in place is that God is the creator. Therefore, we are accountable to him and he is distinct from us. Plank number two, God is sovereign. Acts 17, 24 again, Paul says, he talking about God, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. God is sovereign over the devil. He is sovereign over humans. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over the weather and the stars. He's sovereign over our bodies and our hearts and our minds. He is sovereign. And from this, it follows that God doesn't share custody of his creation with the other gods. He's speaking to Greeks who would have been familiar with the Greek pantheon and how you know Zeus controls the sky and Poseidon controls the ocean and Hades, the underworld. And no, the God of Scripture, the true God, the only God, doesn't share custody of his creation. He alone rules and he cannot be confined or limited. God is sovereign. The third plank to nail down is this, is that God has aseity. Now, that's a fancy word. It simply means independence. God is not served, as it says in Acts 17, 25, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is self-existent. He is the uncreated creator. He has his existence in himself and everything else is dependent on him. God is the one necessary being. Everything else is contingent. We depend on him. We do not have to exist. He does. He depends on no one. He is independent. If all the humans in the world were to stop worshiping God today, it wouldn't affect him in the least. It would deeply affect us. It would not affect him at all. He is not some tribal deity who, once the last believer in him dies, he winks out of existence. He is independent from his creation. The fourth plank to nail down, we are dependent on God. 
The reason that God doesn't depend on us, Paul says in Acts 17, 25, is because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That word everything is carrying a lot of weight. God is ase. He is independent. He has aseity. We are the opposite of ase. We depend on God for everything. We are the most dependent creatures. We think of ourselves as being so proud, so lofty, so independent, and we need God for our lungs to function. We need God for our brains and our hearts to beat. We need God for our atoms to hold together. We depend on God for literally everything, whether you're an atheist or a Christian or a Muslim or something else, we all depend on God. The fifth plank of a biblical worldview is this. We all come from one man. Acts 17, 26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the first four planks all have to do with with God, and we're now shifting the focus to man. And Paul's claim that we all come from one man has three clear implications. Implication number one, we have a universal problem, but we also have a universal solution. Since we all came from one man, and since that one man brought sin and death into the world, it will be possible for one man to reverse the curse for people. Our universal problem will have a universal solution. The second thing that follows is, quite simply, racism is a sin, and it's also stupid. Every race comes from the same origin. It makes no sense to hate someone for their ethnic identity when you and they are cousins. That is foolishness, and it's sinfulness. It's evil. It's wicked. And Christians must have nothing to do with it. And third, we all come from one man. Therefore, God is the Savior of all people, not just the Jews. Paul wants the people of Athens to see that God cares deeply for the world. He made the world. He didn't just make Abraham and everyone who comes from Abraham. He made the world. Plank number six. Now we get to the problem with the world. Acts 17, 27. It says that, God has done this, he's allotted boundaries and periods, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now notice, Paul is speaking to philosophers who don't have a biblical concept of sin, and therefore Paul isn't actually saying the word sin. But he is acknowledging the problem that every human being on the planet knows to be true. We've all lost contact with the God who made us. We are all blind and groping in the dark for God. And God wants us to find him. We know, biblically speaking, that God is actually out looking for us, but he is calling us home. And all human beings feel this deep yearning to be reunited to God. And our separation is because of our sin. The seventh plank that Paul gives us for a biblical worldview is the imminence of God. Because while we are groping for God like blind men in the dark, Paul says he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. The wonder of biblical Christianity is that we serve a God who not only reigns over us, he's actually present among us. He cares for all of us as a perfect father, even over those who don't worship him. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, that God causes his rain to fall and his sun to shine 
on the wicked and the good, the evil and the just. God is good to all people in a hope of coaxing us towards him. Plank 8, sin and idolatry. Now we're getting even more explicit into the problem. Paul says in Acts 17, 29, we are God's offspring. Therefore, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Sin is not just breaking a rule. It's personally insulting the one who made you. I love to cook and probably my favorite thing to make is pizza. I make like seven different kinds of pizza, different crusts, and I won't bore you with all the details, but I really like pizza. And I love for people to come over and eat my pizza. But if someone came over and ate my pizza and then they fell down and began to bow and worship the pizza that I made, I would think they were crazy, but I'd also be a little bit insulted. It's like, I mean, the dough didn't make itself. I made the pizza. Well, multiply that by an infinite degree. And this is how God feels when he sees us placing our ultimate hope and security and joy and finding meaning and purpose in things that he made instead of in him. Idolatry is not only wrong, it's foolish. God made us. Find your hope in him. Find your safety in him. This is the essence of sin and idolatry, to look for these things in anything other than the creator. The ninth plank of a biblical worldview is a biblical view of history. Acts 17, 30 through 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Time is not a wheel. It's not a cycle. Time had a beginning and it's heading toward a definite ending. And in between those two events, the beginning in Genesis 1 and the return of Jesus in Revelation 20 through 22 is the central event of all of history, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when you nail these nine planks together, a biblical view of history, sin and idolatry, the imminence of God, the problem with the world, we're, our, our universal descent from Adam, our dependence on God, God's independence, his sovereignty, and his creator status. This is the stage that we stand on and that we read the scriptures from and that we make sense of the scriptures. And this is how concepts like righteousness and salvation begin to make sense. If there's no creator, then there's nothing wrong with idolatry because if no one made me, I can worship whoever I want. I don't answer to anyone. And if I don't answer to anyone, I certainly can't sin. And if I can't sin, I certainly don't need to be saved. And I think the reason this is so important for us, particularly in America, is that increasingly we will be speaking to people who don't speak our language. I'm not referring to English. I'm talking to Christianese. We're, we're going to be speaking to people who have not grown up in church who don't have this vocabulary, who don't have these concepts in mind that we can certainly help them understand it on a deeper and more true level. But we cannot just walk up to people on college campuses or in coffee shops or at the grocery store and start talking about sin and righteousness and salvation and judgment, assuming that those concepts make any kind of sense. Because increasingly, they will not. And so we as Christians have to have in our minds a very solid grasp of what a biblical worldview is how the world twists and distorts almost every single one of these and is likely going to be present in the people that we're sharing with. And we have to get down to the true basics. These are the basics that we have to understand. And notice, again, Paul hasn't even said the name of Jesus. 
because the name of Jesus would be meaningless to them without these concepts in place. So may we strive to be clear in our thinking so that we can be clear in our explanation so that others may turn away from their sin and their idolatry and find salvation in Jesus Christ. And when they do, he will not only give them the new heart promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he'll also renew our minds. He will transform the way that our new brother and sister in Christ views and understands the world, and he will grow them over time till they are also faithful witnesses who can go and tell others what Jesus has done for them. And may it be so for us. So friends, the next time we come back together, Lord willing, we're going to look at our third theme, and that is the entrance of sin and death into the world. But for now, take up and read. God bless. God bless.